We are in the second week of a series that uh, we are calling Revelation in Red. And uh, in this series, we're taking some time uh, to explore and to look at some letters that Jesus wrote to seven unique churches in the first century Roman province of Asia. And uh, what we trust, what we believe, is that even as we peer in and we eavesdrop on what Jesus said to those unique churches in those unique situations, that what we'll find is the Spirit of God will pen his own notes to our hearts generations down the line where we live. And um, last week we started by just getting acquainted, getting some sense of the tone, some of the heart of this letter. Um, and uh, we ran into a number of things. I'm going to mention a couple of them. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you head to our YouTube um, channel or to our website or, you know, and, and find our downloadable sermons wherever um, they can be found. I'm not even sure all the different locations. I know at least those, website, YouTube, but catch up with us so you can get a sense of uh, where we've been, and that way you can have a sense of where we're going. But we discovered that, you know, this book of Revelation starts with an announcement of grace and peace. And the reason we camped there for a little while last week is just because when we think about Revelation, those of us who are familiar with the Bible tend to think of Revelation as this book about death and pestilence and, and plagues and dungeons and dragons and all of these scary things, and we tend to keep our distance from it. And in what you open its pages, it says grace and peace. It's a book laced with grace and peace, spiked with grace and peace, a God who is saying, I am looking for any excuse to offer you more grace and invite you into more peace. And that's good for us to just hold on to as we step into the study of this book. But the key question we found last week that we want to be asking week after week is what does revelation require of us? Because we also saw last week that there is a pronouncement, there is a promise of blessing, not to the person who merely listens to the words of Revelation, but to the person who lives the words that they hear. And we want to continue to ask the question, what does this revelation require of us? What does this revelation require of us so that we can live in the blessing that is, is promised. This morning, we're going to start uh, looking at the first of the seven letters. And the first of the seven letters is Jesus dictating his words through John to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. Um, now, we don't know Jesus' reasons necessarily for starting with uh, the church at Ephesus. Historians, you know, they suspect and pontificate and wonder um, if the reason wasn't because Ephesus was the most significant and important city in the Roman province of Asia. Um, we don't know, but that was true. Ephesus was a happening place. Ephesus was the city that never slept. Ephesus was like, if you could make it in Ephesus, you could make it anywhere. Ephesus was like where Jay-Z and Queen B, they would live if they lived anywhere. Um, 
Ephesus was a city that was uh, located at the mouth of the Aegean Sea, and all you need to know about that was that made it the hub, the center of import and export. If you had any kind of business and hoped to do any kind of business and hoped to see your business thrive in any kind of way, you had to go through and you had to do business in Ephesus. It was a center of import and export. And because of some of that, that place just boomed to a population of about a quarter million people, which to us may not sound like a big deal, but in the first century, that was a huge deal. And because of all of that, it became the hub of a variety of different things. It was the center for entertainment. Anything you hoped to do and anything you wanted to do, you could do in Ephesus. In Ephesus, there was a theater that seated 25,000 people. And in the era of college football, that may not sound impressive, but just think, first century, 25,000 people. It was a political hotbed. Um, It was one of the free states granted sovereignty to make its own decisions and to kind of rule itself in a way, which made it a center of incredible political significance and relevance. It was a spot for tourism. It's beautiful streets and it's ornate architecture. Um, It was a place to be and people visited it frequently. In fact, it was the home of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the temple of the fertility goddess Artemis. In fact, people who lived outside of Ephesus would come to Ephesus and they would see that thing and they would say, I promise that thing touches the clouds. It was massive, about four times bigger than the Greek Parthenon, for whatever that's worth to you, um, history buffs. It was a pretty significant place, Ephesus. And Ephesus was also a religious center. And the motto in Ephesus was, you do you, boo. Now, that's not necessarily what they said, um, but it was an incredibly polytheistic place, which meant there was an immense tolerance and embrace and celebration of religions of every variety and kind. You can worship your God and you can follow your principles and you are welcome here. So, Paul must have said, hey, okay. So in about A.D. 52, Paul, the apostle, with the help of a couple of characters, Priscilla and Aquila, launched the church in Ephesus, in the capital city of happenings, in the capital city of entertainment and religion and politics. And the church in Ephesus took off. That place was on fire. Fire. People were coming to Christ in droves. They were making a marked and real difference in the world. They were doing so great. It's the same Ephesus that the book of Ephesians is directed to. And if you study the book of Ephesians, one of the quick things you notice is there is no correction in Ephesians. There is no drama. There's no beef. This church is almost the ideal church they are doing so well. And it's to that church, to those people, about 30 years after its launch, that Jesus tells John, I want you to write some things to them, which we find in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. If you have a copy of the Bible, um, meet me there, Revelation chapter 2. If you don't own a physical copy of the Bible, two things. Number one, no worries. The verses will be up here on the screen. Number two, though, we would love to get a physical copy of this book into your hands. 
Um, so end of this service, you can head to the connection corner and just say, I need a Bible. And you will see joy on the face of the person who hands you this thing that we know will change your life forever. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start in verse number um, one. And again, for those of you who are new at a mission point, I just want to, again, save you any emotional whiplash and just know that we're going to read, you know, segments and then we're going to pause and we're going to ponder, we're going to reflect and we're going to read some more. Um, in fact, we're going to stop pretty quickly here, so don't get too ready um, on me, but just want to let you know that. Uh, we're going to start again, verse one, uh, Revelation chapter chapter 2, and here's what it says. Um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Okay, here's a, a trippy thing. Um, that trips me out. It may trip you out. It may not. I don't know your trip factors. Um, I think um, chapter 2 verse 1 hints at the fact that to Every local church, there is assigned a heavenly angel. That's a trip, if you ask me. Revelation chapter 1 verse 20 says this, as Jesus is explaining to John what John sees when he encounters this vision of Jesus. Jesus says, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Because apparently the churches had angels. This is tripping me out. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. The angels of the churches. Did you know that now? Commentators, uh, very smart people, people smarter than I am, um, suggest that perhaps the angel here is a reference to the prevailing spirit and attitude of the church. Now, I don't know where they got the degree or didn't get their degree and why they think that or don't think that, but I'm just saying I find that a little bit strange on account of the fact that there is no other place in the book of Revelation where angel doesn't mean angel, um, like a heavenly creature. We have an angel, y'all. That's trippy. I'm just saying if you've never thought about it and you're just going to have a little bit of like a whoa moment right now, and feel free to do that. Um, thank you. Amen. I'm with you. So while we may have a security team around the premises. Um, it's crazy to me to think that there is a heavenly guardian on patrol somewhere up in here, an angel. 
And while a number of us may get up here and we may say things from the word of God that there is an angel, and I suspect that some of his role is to, to, to hand deliver personally and uniquely the message from heaven the way you are intended to get it. Because it says here to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, which raises the question, why write to the angel if the intention is for the people to get the message unless the angel is, is, is kind of like, um, a part of the heavenly wait staff who serves the king's kids and carries things from the kitchen and brings the appetizer to you and then refills that situation in the ways that you need it. I don't know, but this is pretty awesome. The angel. And by the way, for those of you who have gifts of sight, gifts of seeing, don't be surprised if every now and then you see something that you cannot fully explain. And I know for a fact, because some of you have come and told me when we were sitting in the service and we were worshiping, I saw standing located over there this thing that I cannot explain. You are not crazy. You just might be a little bit dialed in. He might just peel back the veil every now and then and you might see something. So I'm just warning you so you don't freak out. But I wish I could tell you how often people have said to me, and you know what I saw? And I'm like, where? Where? Oh, man, why am I getting so thrown off? Last week, I was standing up here, and I was talking about the fact that I'm reading out loud from the book of Revelation that there's a heavenly blessing on my head. And I asked, can anyone see it? And somebody came to me after the service and said, yes. And then afterwards, it did this, and then it went there. And I'm like, all right, I'm not going to ask questions anymore that I do not want the answers to. But... <laughs> um, all that to say, we have an angel. If nothing else, come to church, man. There is so much going on here, even in your busy schedule, beyond the songs and the speeches we give. Heaven is in the house. But as cool as the angel is, apparently, more importantly, Jesus is here. Revelation 2 verse 1, it says, it goes on, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him, Jesus, who holds the seven stars, which are the angels, in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands, which are the churches. Which has to make us pause and think, if we are impressed with the thought of an angel, how much more in awe should we be of the one who holds angels in the palm of his hand? And I love what it says to, to the one who walks. The one who, see again, I, this is awesome. This is so good to be reminded, not just by Kanye, but by John, that Jesus walks apparently. When we gather, he is here every time. He's here now, and not in the omnipresent Jesus is everywhere kind of way, but in the imminent. He is uniquely with his people. That is an overwhelming thought. And I think we hear that Jesus is in our midst, and, and I, I think we get so used to the thought that it almost becomes boring. And yet this is one of the most incredible Truths that these are the words that we're about to see of the one who walks among the churches, meaning he seldom walks quietly. Uh, Jesus walks among us and loves to talk to 
his people, loves to speak to his people. And that's good because, again, what we need ultimately, church, is not the opinion of a preacher. I'm telling you right now, my cute illustration has no power to push back the darkness in your life. Uh, My thoughts and opinions up here and my ability to communicate or not communicate is not going to change the trajectory of your teenager. What we need are the words of the one who holds angels in his hands and he walks among his churches. It is a good thing that he speaks. I don't know what you come to church to hear, but what you need to hear are the words of Jesus, maybe carried uniquely by the angel to you. I don't know how it all works. And what we need to experience most is a moment in the presence of the Alpha and the Omega. And he carries on, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Apparently, Jesus doesn't just walk among us. Jesus knows. I walk in your midst, and I know. Jesus knows. I walk in your midst, and I pay attention to what you do. It says to the Ephesian church, I know your deeds. And I'm telling you, Mission Point, he would say the same thing to us. I know what you do. From the songs you sing to the sermons you preach, I know what you do. How you serve if you choose to serve to the way you strategically plan as a church, I know your deeds. I know how you show up in the community. I know how you show up in your dorm. I know how you sit with your family. I know your deeds. And it's just amazing how much that would alter our lives if we for a moment paused and thought about this. Um, Our offices, church offices, are located at uh, Lakeland Christian Academy. And I just want to give you some useless information. But man, every week you will find me preparing um, for sermons at Lakeland in the middle of the night. And the way I do it is I will walk around the halls um, in the dark, which is a creepy thing every now and then. A teacher will come because they forgot something and will run into each other around the corner, and it's just epic. Um, (laughs) But, oh man, and that's just part of what I do. And... um, (laughs) And I enjoy it. I mean, I'm flailing my arms, and sometimes I'm speaking out loud, and sometimes I'm saying stuff. And um, anyway, so Lakeland thought it would be a good idea to install cameras everywhere. (laughs) Um, Man, that is so awkward now. Because I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do with my hands? You know, because now... I know that somebody may be watching. So it just affects the way I walk. It affects the things I do. You know, it affects how I adjust my wardrobe and what I pick out when. Okay, too far, too far. That's an overshare. That's an overshare. But um, it is amazing what it would do for us if we really believe. That there is never a scenario in which Jesus isn't walking and Jesus isn't aware and he's not seeing what we do. There isn't a a moment when it's like, I can just flail my arms and he doesn't care. I love this reminder. It will change everything about the way that we, we, we live. And I would invite you, by the way, pray for us as a, a church. 
Because I know in my own broken heart, it is so tempting, you know, because a lot of the questions about church is how big is your church and how many people go to your church? And before long, we find ourselves, at least I do, tempted to start to consider what it might look like to cater to people so you can be impressive and people be like, I like that place. I want to go to that place. And we need you to pray for us that we would remember that what matters most is the one who walks among the lampstands and the one who watches what we do. And we ought to primarily be concerned about catering to him, which by the way, in a church context, if we lift up the Alpha and Omega, he'll bring who he wants and he will build his church. But something has to happen in us that lives primarily with the awareness that Jesus, he is paying attention to everything that we do. And to the Ephesians, he then starts to tell them, here's what I observe. Here's what I see when I look at you. This is, this is incredible as he starts to reflect um, what he sees. And he says, verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. Isn't this interesting? Which part? I'll tell you which part, since you asked. We live in a culture, whether you've uh, paid attention to this or not, and it's very, very Ephesus-like. We live in a culture in which um, intolerance is like a swear word. Uh, We live in a culture where um, we are encouraged to not just embrace but celebrate anything and everything. Otherwise, we are accused of being bigoted or we are accused of being close-minded. But this idea of tolerance in our culture is almost the highest form of enlightenment. The more you are able to say, you do you, And have at it, that almost speaks to some level of maturity and enlightenment. And then Jesus says to the Ephesians, love your intolerance, you guys. I mean, that's my version of the Bible, says. um, You cannot tolerate wicked people. And he is complimenting them on this, this intolerance for evil. That's really interesting to me because apparently there's certain times and there's certain things Jesus wants us to be intolerant over. And in this situation, he again praises them for being intolerant of wicked people. Jesus is saying, it matters to me that you do not applaud or approve or embrace or celebrate wicked people. The Ephesian church apparently has no problem calling sin, sin, and evil, evil, and Jesus commends them for their intolerance of wickedness. And I'm just telling you, the moment we as a church 
lose our ability to call things what Jesus calls things and to say about things what Jesus says about things, we lose the commendation of the one who walks and the one who watches what we do and we start to move towards powerlessness. But um, some of you will appreciate that first part. Some of you will appreciate this next part, but I trust the Spirit wants us to appreciate both. Here's where I've got to pause and say, did you notice who Jesus called wicked people? Because I think there's a group of us in the church who will hear this about the intolerance of wickedness and we will say, Amen! And we will rage and rise up against the culture and the moral filth and the decay and we will rage against Hollywood and all that's broken in the world and we will go off on all of that. And we get so tissy that people who don't know Jesus behave like they don't know Jesus. How could they? What is wrong with these people? And we will rage against the world. But when Jesus speaks of wicked people, church, he is not speaking about pagans outside the church. He's speaking about posers inside the church. He's talking about pretenders. He's talking about people who claim to know him but live like they don't. He calls them wicked. That's not what we tend to think. We tend to put the world in our crosshairs and we tend to go at them trying to fix them and get them to behave like they have the power of the Spirit in them, empowering them to live like Jesus when those of us who have the power of the Spirit in us often don't. Jesus is talking about people inside the church and he says, I commend you for not tolerating that. Now in their day, there was a group of these, um, these church wannabe leaders, these uh, self-proclaimed apostles who would go around the churches and talk about how they've been called um, by Jesus Christ. Super, super knowledgeable. And they sounded the part. And when they spoke, it was articulate. Um, they're very, very, very profound in the things that they knew. They loved power, they loved popularity, and they tried to get people to follow them at all costs. What can we do to get a bigger followership? How can we spark a bigger movement? And that was their obsession. Um, but the Ephesians, they were dialed in and they saw right through it. And you know how they did it? It was simple. It was a fruit test. Uh, the Ephesians noticed that, um, man, for people who talked a lot about Jesus, they behaved nothing like him. They didn't live 
or look like Jesus, proving that whatever they said about Jesus was not genuine. This group of people who were part of the church failed the fruit test. And so the Ephesians would invite them to consider how they might repent or how they might turn or how they might consider moving away from those patterns of life. And these people wanted nothing to do with it. They would get super defensive and they will justify and they would use rationalization to say, no, our practice is this, it's freedom in Christ. And they would start to say all kinds of things to justify their sinful patterns of behavior. They would refuse to return. And after a while, the Ephesians started to say, the pattern of your life does not follow Jesus. And we are calling you on this. And they would even get to the point where they say, and we are asking you to step outside of the context of the church. We do not want the church to become vulnerable because of your profession and you refuse to back it up with the way that you live. You look pretty and you sound the part. But you don't follow Jesus. And this is who Jesus has issue with. They talk about me, but they don't look like me. They worship me on Sunday, but then Monday comes and they go and they abuse their employees. They gossip about their co-workers. And they just go living after their passion and their pleasure like that's the only thing. But then they come back and they sprinkle a little Sunday on it and they can quote scripture and they can tell you all that's right and they can rage against the world. But they don't live like me. They don't care about what I care about. They don't care about the broken. They don't care about the hurting. Jesus calls the poser wicked, and he calls the church to call it out. And I wonder what Jesus would see in us as he walks in our midst. Because when people who say, I'm in with Jesus, do not show a pattern of following Jesus, I think the church has become super soft on that. You rage on Facebook about everyone outside the church. But we've gone to the point where we've gotten this thing, and I hope we'll talk about this in, in, in coming uh, months. But it's like, I don't want, who am I to judge? I can't tell. I don't know. And yet the Spirit is putting a burden on you, and you've watched enough to know, like, man, the direction you are taking, the, the, the pattern in your life is not okay. Well, I don't want to, you know, so no, no thanks. I, I'm going to leave that out. And Jesus would say, no, I commend you, Ephesians, because when you see people moving in that direction, you come alongside them and you invite them back. And if they refuse to turn, you do not tolerate them. You say, okay. Then, and here's the point. Then go live like you really are living. Stop faking it. Stop being duplicitous. If the pattern and the path does not match the claim, are we as a church willing to come alongside each other and tell each other, stop playing, stop posing, stop pretending? Have we become so cowardly and so, so tolerant of what Jesus says not to 
tolerate. And so I would say to us as a church, to you as a follower of Jesus, first of all, the question for your own life is, are you duplicitous? Are you just claiming Jesus but not following him? I mean, if we took a moment and then interviewed your kids, what would the pattern be that they say about you? If you never said anything, what would your coworkers assume was true about you? I mean, do your friends at school even have a clue? But then the other thing is if we're aware of other people in our lives, are we willing to come alongside them? Because to, to tolerate duplicity in each other is to displease Jesus. Then Jesus compliments them again. He says, you have persevered, verse 3, and you've endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus affirms the Ephesians' faith under fire. I walk among you and have seen the way your faith stands under fire. That what you say you believe in the pews has proven to be true under pressure. Because by the way, church, who we really are and what we really believe is not tested in this safe environment. It is proven when pressure starts to kind of come in and close in on us. Uh, by the time this letter is being written to the Ephesians, the church is on fire and under immense fire. It is hated by almost everybody in every direction. The church at Ephesus is experiencing persecution, they're experiencing mockery, they're experiencing imprisonment, they're experiencing confiscation of their stuff, they're experiencing death. Many of them are being put to death because of their faith and their belief and their insistence on living for Jesus Christ. Good, good question, good question. Wait, I thought you said Ephesus was a you-do-you polytheistic culture. Uh, yeah, I did say that. But fine print, um, you always want to read the fine print. Um, Ephesus was very embracing of every religion except Christianity. Well, because Christianity claimed the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, no, that's not their problem. Um, the caveat was you can worship any God you want and you can live according to any religious principles that you want as long as you are willing to affirm that Caesar, the emperor, is the greatest of all the gods. Then we don't care what you do. Have at it. And the Caesars, uh, some of them were, were more enforcing than others, would build these statues and people were expected to burn incense and then out loud confess that Caesar is Lord and God. Then here rises this movement 
that is taking over Ephesus. And hey, Caesar emperor, hey, we want you to know there's a movement of people who will not pledge their allegiance to you. And it got to the point where soldiers would literally beg the Christians, hey, please, just a little incense and just, listen, Just deny Jesus a little bit and say Caesar is the greatest. You don't even have to mean it. Please, we are begging you for the sake of your safety, for the sake of your family. And the church said, absolutely not. We already know who the Alpha is and there is only one. We already know who the Omega is and there is only one. We know who Lord is and there is only one. We will not bow. We will not pledge. And so Caesar said, get rid of them, however you have to. And so it started with bullying. And then eventually they bulldozed them. Just, they started to do the most vile things to the church. And the church started to even have conversations like, okay, guys, gather around, team meeting. How much incense is okay? And how much can we at least start to compromise? And they came to the conclusion, we will not retreat. We will not compromise. We will not surrender. We will not bow. And it's in that context that Jesus says, I've been walking among you. And I see you. I see the way your faith is proven genuine under pressure. I see you. And church, I know that Jesus would speak the same words to many of us in this room. I see you. I see the way you are fighting to hold on to those vows even in a painful situation at home. I see you. I see you. I see you at school and the way that you are still claiming Jesus even when all the cool kids are mocking you because of what you believe and you are drawing a line in the sand and saying, I still believe. I see you. And when you as a church rise up and you speak for the unborn and the world calls you all kinds of things and starts to threaten to take this and take that away, I see you. And Jesus would say the same thing to us when we get into pressure situations and we refuse to bow, we refuse to compromise. He will say, I applaud you for that. I see you. And by the way, one of the reasons this is so great for us to get a hold of and for us to embrace is because we are coming up on days the Bible promises. And I'm convinced of this, that when the Antichrist comes, It's going to be the same situation over again. You know this, right? I want you to bow and pledge that I am Lord and God. Otherwise, I will cut you off. I won't let you buy anything. I won't let you sell anything. You must pledge. And it's so good for us to gain strength and courage from the example of uh, our predecessors and to hear the affirmation of Jesus. And we're going to start to see the promise after promise after promise after promise after promise that Jesus reserves for the person who perseveres. And there's no better place for us to start to gain the courage necessary For perseverance, and when we sit in a comfortable room like this, this is the best place to prepare for battle. And to decide right now that when things go crazy, I will not pledge. 
And when my friends at school start to go after their stuff, I will not go. This is a place to make that decision and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the one who walks among the churches, he sees you and he applauds you. And I promise you when he comes riding on the clouds, that will be what matters more than anything else. Jesus says, I see you. And then he invites them to grace by telling them the one thing that is holding them back a little bit. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Your faith is strong. Your courage is strong. But there's something I have an issue with. It's your love. You, you just don't love like you used to. Now, you know what's interesting is we really don't know whether Jesus is primarily speaking about love for him or love for others in the church. I've always read this and assumed Jesus must be talking about love for him, but I don't it could be both. What do you think? Let me know as you study and you reflect on some of this. I, 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 don't, I don't know. It could be both. That you don't love each other like you did at first. Because I wonder if in a hypervigilant attempt to protect from posers and to deal with duplicity, the church hadn't become judgmental and suspicious. That's a danger. If they hadn't become inspectors and investigators, evaluating and parsing each other's behavior. Now I'm, you know, monitoring everything you say and everything you post on social media. I wonder if that's what didn't start to sneak in because it's hard to be for your success if I'm looking for something you may be doing wrong. That's how I know I'm in an unhealthy place as a dad. When I'm just like, okay, you know, I'm setting up traps and trying to see like, did you mess up? Oh, it is so hard to be for my kids if I'm waiting for them to be wrong or I'm expecting them to do something wrong and I become this investigator and I start to miss the beauty of the things they're doing well. I start to miss the ways the Lord is calling them because of my posture. And that's how we know when our marriages get in trouble, when we lose the ability to see the beauty of what's happening. All I know is what she's doing wrong and where she's failing and where he's not like this. But I wonder if that's not maybe what's happening in Ephesus. These truth guardians have become behavior watchdogs and love has waned. When I start to pay too much attention to, you know, your house is so messy and I start to lose sight of the overwhelming season that you're in, love is going to naturally wane. And when I start to pay attention to your sharp words, your words are so sharp. Oh my goodness. You know, the sharpness of the words, watch, watch how sharp the words are. And I forget how much they were lacerated when dad left last year. Love starts to wane when I start to pay more attention to this is what you're doing wrong. 
This is why you have this drinking issue. And I start to pay more attention to what's not right, and I, I, I completely lose sense of the place that's hurting in you that convinces you you have to escape. Then love starts to, to wane. I don't know what's happening in the Ephesian church, but maybe it's a love for Jesus himself. Maybe they become so hypervigilant, you know, to stand for Jesus. To take a stand on the issues and to be people of integrity. We're going to stand for Jesus and they've forgotten to just sit with Jesus. Yet they're doing so much for him, they've forgotten, Martha, that this whole thing called salvation is not ultimately about working for Jesus. It's ultimately about enjoying Jesus. And this is eternal life that they would know you, the one true God, and me, Jesus Christ, whom you have Sent. And I wonder if in their desire to do the right things, they have missed the relationship and love has started to wane. I don't know which one it is. I think the more important question this morning is which one would Jesus speak to you as he walks in our midst? Um, this has um, kicked my... Um, Proverbial but, if you will. Um, because the Spirit has stirred even as I've been reading through this. And it is amazing how he just made clear to me, Kondo, your love for people has waned. I am just too busy for people. I was just remembering back to college days when we would sit around and we would talk and we would, you know, spend time just getting to know each other and we would play games and clocks would be turned upside down. Now, again, there's benefits to that and there are not so great benefits to that. But I remember, I remember when it would just be time to sit with friends and, and just pour our hearts out and just, you know, get to know and enjoy and all of those kinds of things. And then something happened. And I say it's, I'm busy, but I think, no, my heart has just become harder and I'm just self-centered and my life is just more important than your life. And, and you, you know, then all of a sudden, if we start to talk and then I might hear your burden, then I have to carry that thing. And then like, ah, oh, I'm too busy to deal with that. And, and all of a sudden, I wonder if my love hasn't just waned um, and the spirit starts to show me that it, then it, we get close and then I'm going to disappoint you and I'm terrified of disappointing you, so maybe it's just safer if I, if I keep my distance. And I think I've let technology, can I just be honest while I'm talking up here, just kill my love for people in many ways. I'm just, it's true. Like, why talk to you on the phone? I used to like talking on the phone. But why talk to you on the phone when... You can just send me a text message. Send me time and I can look at it at my leisure. In fact, why text me full sentences when you can just text me an emoji and let's just get to the point? Because people have now become a nuisance. And now I'm going to stand with you with my phone and I'm engaging people who aren't even here. And then, by the way, why, why should I be with you when I can watch you on social media? And I started to realize, like, Lord, 
as many excuses as I want to, to, to use, I am losing my sense of your love for people and the premium you put on relationships, and I'm just, just busy even for the people I care the most about. And this was indicting to me. And I've become so self-centered and so absorbed in so many ways. And there's this beautiful invitation, as we'll see here in a second, to return. Team, you guys can come on out and we'll, we'll close. Um, I remember when I got saved at 17, I would spend every night for at least two hours, I would get on the hard ground in my room on my knees, and I would just spend time with the Lord, and I loved it. And I would read his word, and I enjoyed it. Then I, I came to, to, to the United States, and I lived with my aunt. I didn't have a room. I slept in the living room, and so I didn't have private space. I would literally go into the bathroom and get on my knees and spend time with the Lord. And I would pick a day every week where I'd just fast because I wanted him to show up in amazing ways as an 18-year-old. And then I got older, and I started to discover, well, not a lot of other people do this. And, you know, apparently you can get away with just a little bit. And before long, I started to realize that my time with him and my love for him and how much I enjoyed him had started to wane. And the truth is, I can honestly say I have never enjoyed Jesus as much as I did as a 17-year-old. And the Spirit of God is stirring in me. You have lost your first love. Now, more people know me today than knew me back then. And I do more stuff for him today than I did back then. And I may stand on a stage today that, that I didn't stand on back then. But when Jesus walks, what he cares about is condo, though you've lost your passion and your love for me. And so listen to what he says, because this is his great invitation in verse 5. He says, consider how far you've fallen and I'm not indicting you. I'm inviting you. Repent and do the things you did at first. I love that. I'm not done with you. I'm not shaming you. I'm calling you. Come back. And the coming back, the repenting, is not so much about feel the things you felt at first. Because for many of us, we don't feel what we used to feel in our marriage. We don't feel what we used to feel with people. We don't feel what we used to feel with Jesus. And the invitation isn't to feel what you felt at first. It is stop, turn around, and go back and do the things you did at first. And so last week, I'm not kidding you, I got in my room on my knees for the first time in a long time. I said, I don't feel it yet, but I'm going to start repenting and taking these steps back. Some of my staff will admit to you that I was shocked because Kondo called me and we talked on the phone. Some will say, yeah, and I called him and he answered the phone. Because I want to repent. I want to start to take these steps back. I want to know what it means to sit with my kids and do ridiculous things. And it's like, no, I'm too busy. I've got big people stuff to do. I don't know what it means and looks like for you, but what I do know is the invitation is for you to go back and start doing the things you did at first. And I'm talking to some of you who are in marriages right now and say, go back to do the things you did when you were dating. Forget how you feel. Do the things. Go back to doing the things you did when your kids were young and you enjoyed being with them. Go back to that. 
Go back to hanging out with your friends and just putting your phones away and actually being with the people who are there and see if the Lord doesn't start to stir some new and fresh feelings in us. And even if he doesn't, we at least know that his invitation is to what we do, not necessarily to what we feel. And then listen to what he says. Um, He says, if you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Amen. Goodbye. Now, I mean, this is awesome, by the way, and stirring and striking. Um, Jesus isn't saying, and then I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you. I'm going to send you to hell. Amen. Let's pray. No, Jesus is saying, I will come and I'll take your lampstand and I'll snuff it out. Do you know what this means? Um, As a church, you will become a church in name only. You will no longer be a light in the darkness. You will no longer break shackles in your city. You will no longer see fresh life coming about. You will just go through the motions, but the light will be gone. Darkness will not be pushed back. You will become an ineffective church that meets week after week after week, but you don't see anything because your love is gone. And what matters most to me is love. In fact, this world will know you're my disciples because of how you what? But if you don't go back to love of me and other people, I will snuff out your effectiveness. And you gather like this, and it'll be fun, but you will not see much of my power and my impact. And we want better. I want better. I want more. And the question is, what does revelation require of us? The the team is going to lead us in a song. And even as they do, I want to ask elders, small group leaders to come up front. And what does revelation require of you? I know what it requires of me. And if you want somebody to pray with, because you're realizing I have been duplicitous. Can I just be honest? I have been playing a part, saying things about Jesus, but not living for Jesus. And I want to make a marked day right here, right now, and say I want to turn and come and follow you. And for some of you, you'd say, my love has gone. Some of you might even come and say, my marriage is struggling. And I just need to mark this moment and come up and pray and agree with somebody as I turn around and start heading in a different direction. I want to invite you, come on up and pray with one of the folks up here. I am going to be down here, not to pray for you, but to be prayed for. Because I know I need this in my own life. So the team's going to sing. You can stand, you can sit, you can kneel, you can come up front to pray and mark this moment and we'll be glad to agree with you. Leaders, would you please come on up, start making your way this way as the team um, leads us. What does Revelation require of you? What's his beautiful invitation to you? And will you accept it this morning?